This episode of Light Source is brought to you by Squarespace.com. For fast, easy publishing of a professional website, check out photographers.squarespace.com slash ls. And when you sign up, use the promo code LS1 to receive a 10% discount. This is David Toby from Data Color. I'm going to be speaking about color management here on LightSource. And welcome to episode 57 of LightSource, the official podcast of StudioLighting.net, website introducing photographers to portrait and studio lighting equipment and techniques. I'm Bill Crawford, publisher. And I'm Ed Hidden, exclusive photographer with iStockphoto.com. Now, on today's episode, we are going to have a technical discussion with uh, C. David Toby. Uh, he is with Data Color, the makers of the ColorVision Spider. And he's going to tell us a lot about why we need to calibrate our monitors, what it means to have a full color managed workflow. And what seems, at first glance, what might be a, a dry discussion, it actually was very interesting, I thought. Uh, absolutely. I was actually hoping that we, what we could pull off was that we could get one episode where if you were trying to figure color management out, that you could just listen once and get it. And I think we kind of pulled that off. I think so, too. It was um, Color management's been something I struggled with, especially with my early printer that I, uh, that I had. And for a while, I had relied heavily on hitting the print button and, and printing it out of the printer and, and hoping that it came out good. And most of the time they did come out pretty good because I was using a decent printer. But when I got into the area of uh, pigment inks and trying to make sure that I'm making high quality, long lasting prints, what I was seeing on my screen is not what was coming out of my printer. Right. Or on the other hand, if you're the kind of photographer that's begins to be, you know, sell prints, this starts to be pretty important. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And and actually understanding what you're know, making your corrections, because if you're making some, a correction on screen and you're trying to go, you're thinking, oh, it's too red. And, and you try and dial in a little more yellow and things like that or more blue, you could end up shifting your image completely the opposite direction if you're not seeing what is truly going to be coming out of your printer and, and could end up banging your head against the wall a lot trying to figure it out so it's really good information and anyone who does any output of their work it should definitely listen to this show absolutely while we're talking about outputting your work i was at a photographer's breakfast with some local photographers here in central pennsylvania area and when we showed up a lot of the guys had their little portfolio books with them and they were sharing their images that they had shot and I felt a little bad that all I had were some a, a few miscellaneous images on my iPod. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of funny seeing in the thread where some of the people had talked about iPhone users and iPod Touch users, and they had their portfolios on their iPods. But actually seeing and holding a print for the first time in, a, in quite a while is kind of getting me uh, excited about printing again. Yeah, there's something there when you're actually holding a photo in your hand and you can feel it. It's a more tactile thing. I think you're right. It's a difference. I, there's a an Epson commercial I usually hear, and they talk about, they say, uh, if you don't have a print, you don't have a photo. All you have are ones and zeros on a hard drive. And I always laughed every time I heard that, thinking, oh, yeah, it's not a big deal. My stuff just goes on iStock or Flickr or on my website or just email it to someone, and I was happy with that. But actually seeing my work, printed out a lot more lately i'm like hmm i really need to decorate my studio with some of my right. work 
in the walls here at the house and stuff because it's just it's like wow it's like this is a this is a whole other piece of work when you when you actually look at it and hold it right i think it's going to be a mix though i mean i really enjoy looking at images on in slideshows and things like that as well and i just got an arcos personal video player and i like to look at my photos on there too so i don't know for me it's really nice that you can look at a lot of them on there right that's true you can carry a lot more with you than you could otherwise and it's always there and it costs next to nothing where you're Prints are going to cost you I don't know, anywhere from like one to three dollars, depending on the size that you're looking at and the quality of paper, ink, printer, etc. that you have. So, I mean, right. yeah, there's kind of like that whole trade off. So I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to be building a paper portfolio just to have and leave it at the studio when someone comes over, they can flip through it. Or if I need to go talk to somebody that's thinking about having me shoot with them. I want something that's that's more impressive than here. Look at my iPod. Right. Yeah. Well, we we did have a number of photographers that we interviewed actually talk about the importance of having a print book that you can lend to somebody. So I think it's a great idea. Well, and while we're talking about portfolios and presenting your work, one thing you heard at the beginning of the show is this show is now sponsored by Squarespace.com, and they are introducing a new product that you can see at photographers.squarespace.com slash ls for light source and you can see some of the examples of some of the portfolios that photographers have put together yeah this is a product that i'm really excited about we had been working with the guys at squarespace for a little while talking about this and they've finally been able to launch their product for photographers and it's pretty exciting it's been fun playing with it it's very easy to use it's really easy to publish a page and photo galleries and things like that so it's definitely worth checking out and seeing what you think there's a 30-day trial for you to check it out and see what you think about it and if you decide to sign up use the promo code ls1 and you'll get a 10 percent discount yeah which is really cool um i mean you'll be hearing a lot more from ed and i as we both play with our own versions of the sites and kind of get used to some of the feature sets and we'll be able to talk a little bit about it more but for now if you're really interested in a place to host your images and you want to see a really slick content tool because it also supports blogging, content management, pages, and all that sort of thing as well. So it's like a full-blown website geared for photographers and uh, something worth checking out. In some other news, things that you found this week, you sent me this link for a Home Depot ball. Yes, a DIY. I don't know. What do you call those things? You put it on your portable flash and it diffuses it for you. Well, it's basically, it's a light bouncer. It kind of does what the Gary Fong light sphere does or the LumaQuest adapter, all those basic units that will go on the end of your flash and kind of give it the bare bulb effect where it bounces light around the room. This is kind of similar to that. Right, except it's uh, only a handful of dollars at Home Depot, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to decide what this thing's made of. It looks like there's a an end cap of a pipe. It's actually a gutter, a piece of gutter. <laughs> It's a piece of gutter with some Velcro inside to kind of take up the slack a little bit. And then he attached it to a light dome for a porch light made out of plastic. Oh, nice. Yeah. Some of the sample photos that he put up look pretty good. I would think that most of these will work because, I mean, all you really need to do is get that light to bounce around. And any shape like that that extends out from the flash gun itself is going to to do that. So, I mean, if you're an industrious person and handy with crazy glue and some scissors Mm -hmm. and, well, maybe some big trimmers and maybe not scissors. But, yeah, I mean, these things are pretty easy to make. There's another one. I think I had sent it to you, Bill. Did you get the, uh, the poor man's tripod? I did see the poor man's tripod. I thought that would be a good thing for us to mention on the show, too. <laughs> it's um, while we're talking about DIY things, people always say that it's best to brace against something to reduce your motion 
of your lens. Now, if you're standing, that becomes a little more difficult. So what this this guy did in this video is he took a screw and attached twine to it or heavy cord of some kind and then attached it to a large washer. Now, he measured it so that way the length of the cord was from the base of the camera to where this washer was just about sitting on the ground. So what he does is he steps on the washer and then puts the camera up in position and extends the cord so it's taut. I guess at that point it's making the string rigid. So you have something that you're anchoring it against, which is the pull of the string. So um, I imagine this is probably... It's hard to explain. You have to watch the video. (laughs) It is really hard to explain. We'll put it in the notes. But essentially what it does is it kind of pseudo-adds IS to any lens that's not image stabilization. I want to try it. It seems to make sense. If you have at least one point that you can push up on, it's going to help you a little bit, at least in the vertical direction. And it's so cheap to make. Yeah. That's the thing that amazes me about it. It's like, this. yeah, throw it in your pocket and keep it with you just in case. So that's cool. So there's yeah. a little something to do camera bag for people. That's right. We like to give you guys craft projects when we can. <laughs> and, and everyone submit their photo of their best tripod extender. We, we got to have the brand name for it. <laughs> right. Since we're driving people to the video, we're going to have to come up with a cool name for it. But we'll put that in the Flickr notes or the show notes or something. Yeah, that'll work. The other thing I wanted to mention was that we got an email from Kevin King, who is the guy that we were talking about in the last episode that's making the Radio Popper products. He politely dropped us an email after our last show where, you know, we all we mentioned the Radio Poppers. And he just sort of wanted to set the record straight on a couple of little details that we left out. So (laughs) apologize to Kevin for that. But there's actually two Radio Popper products. In his email, he talks about the Model P1, which he's most excited about because he figured out a way to use a wireless trigger system to send the TTL and ETTL signals from Nikon and Canon systems between the camera and the flash unit without any wires. That's really cool because I've tried to do that with my Canon before. And I had a, a 550 and a 420, and they did not work unless you had a really decent line of sight. Okay. If that yeah. could be controlled with with radio, that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of advantages. The one that he pointed out in his email was if you're a wedding photographer or you only have a few seconds to actually set up a shot and you can't adjust your light because it's across the room, then ETTL is the way to go because it automatically meters the exposure and it cuts off the flash when it has the proper amount of light to, to expose the, the sensor. So this is kind of a cool advance advancement here and i think we mentioned a price on the last episode too now the the model p1 that handles this ettl stuff according to his estimation going to be around 175 dollars for a transmitter and also 175 dollars for a receiver now we were kind of right about the low cost radio trigger when we talked about that because he's also going to be releasing a radio popper junior which is more like the product that we talked about on the last show just an inexpensive but well-built wireless trigger system with two channels that will basically do what any other radio trigger will do and just fire any any flash or mono light that it's attached to. Oh, that's nice. That'll be two different solutions. And, and even the, the higher price solution that they're making is still in a, in a really good price range when they compare against what the other uh, radio triggers are out there. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks for the email, Kevin. It's nice to know these guys are listening to the show. Well, it's good stuff, man. It is good stuff. <laughs> Speaking of the show, we should probably get into the interview here with uh, David Toby and talking about color management. 
It sounds great. And don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode because we're going to have a bunch of links this time to some of the uh, information on the Data Keller website and on some of the spider products. And of course, there will be links and banners for our sponsor. So if you forget the promo code already, you can get to the site from those links as well. And on this edition of the Light Source this evening, we have with us David Toby. Uh, he is with Data Color, makers of uh, lots of color calibration products and management for photographers. They are one of the makers of the Color Spider, which is actually the color calibrator that I use and have for a while now. Uh, I'm excited to have you on the show with us, David. Oh, thanks for having me. Before we start off, I think everyone kind of knows that it's important to have good color. At least the people in our audience know that it's important to have good color. But why exactly is that for people? Well, it's reached a point in the photographic industry where I, I use my dental floss analogy that everybody either flosses or feels guilty because they don't. And it's the same <laughs> with monitor calibration now. Even the people who feel guilty and don't have that sense, but they don't always know what it is they're missing. So really the question you're asking me is why should everybody calibrate their monitor, which is, after all, the first step in getting color managed. And the answer is that monitors are all different. The brightness of them and the color of them is all different, and they vary over time. Even the same monitor will not remain consistent over time. So uh, if you calibrate your monitor, it gives you you know, a, a stake in the ground, a starting point from which you can assure that yourself that everything you're doing is consistent over time, but also that it's consistent with standards and that, that what you see on your display represents the same thing that will be seen elsewhere when other people look at that image. One of the questions that I hear a lot about um, photographers that are kind of branching into that prosumer market, they're getting much more serious about their hobby. The, the question I always get is, if I calibrate my monitor and then I share my photos with somebody on the internet or my, my parents or someone who's a portrait client and they come to look at it, how does he know that they're going to see a good image? Well, we don't, but if you consider all the monitors out there and all their various variations, wouldn't you rather be shooting for the middle of that wild grouping than off to one corner? The real answer is, well, everybody should calibrate their monitor, and the, and the real fact is not everybody is going to, but if at least you do it to standards, you know that, for instance, if you're calibrating to gamma 2.2 and a white point of 6,500, gee, that, those are the standards for sRGB. Those are the standards for the web. So, yes, that would be a good starting point for uh, putting images on the web, even though the people who are going to be viewing the images on the web may not have a calibrated monitor, at least not yet. Well, now you talked a little bit about having a calibrated monitor is just the first step of having a, a good color-managed workflow. Where does it go from there? Well, for the simplest case, the photographer who has one monitor on which they do all their work, no in-house printers, and uses a color-managed photo lab, then that's both the beginning and the end of the process. They calibrate their monitor. They do their corrections on screen. Now, this means whatever adjustments you make in your raw capture software, whatever edits you make in Photoshop, and then you save your file with a tag. That file, as you see, it should be very representative of what you're going to get back from the photo lab, particularly if you soft-proof to a photo lab profile so that it makes the image reflect the gamut of a photo printer. 
Now, that's all that that photographer needs. However, I've made a, a pretty specific case here. I know very few people in this day and age who have only one monitor, who don't have multiple monitors or laptops as well as desktop machines. And even for people who have most of their printing done at a lab, I can't think of too many who don't have at least one in-house inkjet printer that they use for certain types of work. So most people's workflow is not quite so simple as calibrating one monitor and being done with it. At first, we talked about calibrating monitors between monitors so that across the web and sharing it in other places in your office or your studio, you get the same viewing experience on screen. But I'm, I'm now hearing you talk specifically also about print. And that's a, an area that I think a lot of people really begin to get interested in calibration when they start to print their work. And you have the whole, hey, it didn't look like that on my screen, you know, kind of a thing going on. Uh, well, if I were Dear Abby, that's the letter that I would read every day. Gee, <laughs> <Right. laughs> my prints don't match my monitor. So could could you safely say that the photographer doesn't have to choose? He can get good calibration on his monitor. It'll look good on screen and also in print. And I guess under my question, for more technical people, I'm kind of getting at color spaces. Could you talk to that a little bit? Well, I mean, there's a famous engineering phrase which goes, all things being equal. And um, <laughs> so the, the answer here is, is very similar. All color gamuts being equal, uh, color management will make your monitor look exactly like your prints and exactly like another monitor and exactly like a different printer. Unfortunately, all color spaces are not equal. There are really, oh, several kinds of color spaces we could consider here. To keep it simple, there's a capture space, which is not really a color space in your camera. It's more of a response curve. And that is brought in through raw software, often using camera profiles as part of that process. Those are built into the software. You don't really know about those, but just warn you that they're in there. And what you're really doing is you're looking on screen at something that's being brought into your monitor's color space by way of the display profile from a working space in Photoshop, and then it's going to be converted to an output space that is uh, correct for your output device, whichever printer you're going to. Hmm. If I haven't scared you off yet, I'll, <laughs> I'll try a little harder. <laughs> I was going to say, please keep going. I'm, I'm into this. Well, let's, for instance, let's say you're, you're shooting a Formula One race with those Ferraris and that beautiful high fluorescent red and you bring your images back and you correct them on screen and they're that gorgeous red on screen and you send them out to your photo lab and they come back this deep ketchup blood red <laughs> and you say wow there's something wrong here and there is and and the tool that you were lacking in that situation it didn't have to do the working space that your images were in or the camera you used to capture them or even your monitor you did everything right except for one thing you didn't have a profile for the photo lab, and you didn't soft-proof in Photoshop to that output device, if you'd done that, it would have turned all your Ferrari sports cars blood red right there in front of your very eyes, and you would have seen, oh, this is what I'm going to get if I send this out to basically any photo lab, because that's the color gamut of a photo lab that can't reach those high reds. Okay. So that's just one example of, of where color gamuts get you. So when your camera capture doesn't have the exact same color space as your working space or your monitor, your printer, you end up with colors that don't transfer from one to the other exactly, and then you have to uh, figure out what you're going to do with that. That's the classic case is the inkjet printer that has a lemon yellow ink, and you have a photo that you've shot of a New York taxi that's a nice deep sunflower yellow, 
and you print it to your inkjet printer, and it comes out lemon yellow. <laughs> and right. you, so you change your rendering intent in your printer profile, and it comes out a dull, deeper, deeper yellow. But the answer is that particular saturated yellow is not within the gamut of your printer. And what are you going to do about it? Well, one of the things printer profiles are really for is not just printing to them, but warning you in advance of the gamut of the combination of paper and ink and printer you're using so that you can make the best choices. Rather than throwing your picture at a profile, you can actually use the profile to intelligently tell you which parts of the image are out of gamut, what they're going to look like at the gamut limit, and maybe you'd like to adjust those in some different way so that you can find perhaps a yellow that's more what you think a taxi cab should look like, even though it's you know, not exactly the yellow that you originally shot in the photo. Now, before we get any further, the process you just described, that is what is called soft-proofing, correct? Soft-proofing is, is one of the steps in the workflow process, and, it can, and it's the one that uses everything. It uses the monitor profile, it uses your working space, it uses your printer profile all at once. It's kind of the grand finale. Simplest case scenario here is that you have a monitor and you soft calibrate it, meaning without a, a calibrator puck using something like Adobe Gamma or the default calibrator on the Mac, which gives you an, an approximate color correction for your monitor, kind of a by-eye process. You do it three times, you get three different results, but it's better than not doing it at all. That would give you a monitor profile. Now, you then go into Photoshop, and in Photoshop, your monitor profile is used automatically. You can't use Photoshop without using profiles for your displays. can't be done. So then you're looking at your working space file, which is being automatically converted on the fly to that display profile. And you then go into the soft proof function, which is a little different place in different versions of Photoshop, but... Custom proof setup is the name of where you're going, and you select your output profile. You could select, oh, let's say a really dramatic one, like a, uh, a web uncoded paper stock, which would be roughly equivalent to a newspaper. Now, what's going to happen is your image, when you select that proofing function, is going to suddenly, the blacks are going to be a deep gray, the whites are going to be a dull, pale gray, and the colors are going to all be faded, because that's exactly what every picture in a newspaper looks like. <laughs> So this is giving you an emulation of the gamut of your printer on your monitor, which is larger than your printer in this case, so you can see it all, uh, from your working space, which is larger than your printer gamut at this point, so you can see it all. And you look and say, wow, that looks really terrible. But if you show that to your customer, then when that ad comes out in the newspaper, they will pay you anyways because they already know in advance. They've seen either a soft proof or you can actually print that proof from Photoshop mm. and get a a hard proof of that lousy-looking image in a newspaper on a very nice inkjet paper with a very nice inkjet printer. It's really quite amazing. Okay. I think when I started with my color management process, or getting in much of my own color management process, that, that was the hardest concept for me to wrap my head around. I think was it's that the biggest one, yes. It's really hard when I look at these images and I go, wow, this, these colors are so vibrant and beautiful, and why can't I print it out that way? And it, it was especially a bigger issue for me when I was using a pigment ink printer, which didn't have quite as wide of a gamut as some of the dye-based ink printers do. Well, exactly. Years ago, I went to print a poster for my daughter of uh, the kind of underground movie Run, Lola, Run. There were no posters, so I bought the CD and scanned the cover and made her a poster for Christmas. And I went to print it on an HP pigment printer, one of the older ones, and I soft-proofed it. And the bright red hair that was the kind of the 
key feature of the, the star of the movie wasn't bright red with that HP pigment printer. Couldn't, couldn't get there. So uh, I said, well, that would be no fun. So I soft-proofed it to uh, a different printer, an Epson dye printer. And sure enough, there was the brilliant red hair. So I printed it on that printer. Well, this was one of the earlier Epson printers, and it uh, faded within months. <laughs> at least for Christmas, she had bright red hair. <laughs> That's great. So you solve one problem and you have another one. Well, this is what happens. They optimize inkjet printers. Every generation that comes out, we all assume that it's going to solve all our problems. So when it does, is it's a little bit better than the generation before. Same with monitors. We're getting larger gamuts and, uh, and displays that have deeper blacks and better tonality and better dynamic range. All of this improves what we can do but only if it's accurate. So, you know, having good profiles in your workflow and having the best possible devices is uh, part of it. The other email I get every day is, I've got this really lousy paper that I'm trying to profile. And, you know, right there I stop people and say, wait a minute, you know, probably the only really sage piece of advice I can give you, most of this is just technical mumbo-jumbo, but I think there's actually some wisdom in this one, is start with the best paper you can get and profile that. You know, make your workflow based on good printers and good monitors because this is hard enough even with good equipment. Right. Uh, I, I'm, was that an email that I sent? Because I think I had that exact same problem. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I had some really bad, really bad paper that I got that someone had given me a, a huge quantity of, and I, I felt like I felt compelled that I could use it for something. And I tried my best to profile it and, and soft proof it and actually print out with it. And I just finally just threw the stuff out. <laughs> Well, before we leave profiles, I do have a question about the camera color space. You briefly mentioned it. For example, on most of the SLRs, you can choose between at least two color spaces. What would be the advantage of choosing one over the other? Is there an industry standard, uh, Adobe sRGB, for example? I was kind of heavily involved in in twisting the arm of the camera companies back in the day when when, uh, they started coming out with pro digital SLRs that had only sRGB as an output space. And sure enough, after lecturing for several months and showing images and what was lost by not having that extra gamut available, uh, they took me aside in a dark alley on a show floor one day and said, (laughs) our next camera coming out will have both Adobe RGB and sRGB, and the other camera companies quickly followed suit. (laughs) And so now, instead of having only vanilla, we have chocolate and vanilla. Adobe RGB and sRGB available in these cameras. But I don't worry much about that anymore because as long as you're shooting raw, the camera settings for color space are completely moot. They okay. No impact on anything except JPEGs that you shoot or, oddly enough, they do affect the screen preview you see on the back of the camera. Hmm. That's one of the biggest problems of the current generation of digital SLRs is everybody who's using them is shooting raw and they're doing it based on what they see on the back of the camera. Gee, did I blow out those highlights? Gee, is this too dark? And what they're seeing on the back of the camera is not based on RAW. It's based on the JPEG that you're not using for anything but a thumbnail anymore. (laughs) That's great. So I guess, let's say you were a JPEG shooter. Would there be one model over the other that you should be thinking about? Well, there are the people who should should be shooting sRGB, and those are the people who, well, they probably don't need more than a 2-megapixel camera either. The people who are shooting for the web. Okay. If everything that you shoot goes immediately into sRGB for the World Wide Web, uh, little thumbnails and web page images, then sRGB is definitely for you. Uh, Most photography is aimed for some other goal, perhaps as well as the web. 
And what typically happens there is you, you shoot everything in Adobe RGB and you dumb it down to sRGB for the web version. So that would be more typical. And then, of course, there are wider gamut spaces, which bring a whole raft of new challenges and gamut issues in that I won't even start on tonight. But <laughs> We'll call you the, back when that happens. <laughs> yeah, for the average user, you probably want to avoid the wider spaces. Adobe RGB is the best compromise for, for photographic work. Okay, now, now you've, you've got me curious because I've dealt with several professional labs this year. And I've got to say that several of them ask for the image, the final JPEG they're going to print in sRGB. Okay, well, here's the deal. What I do with the photo lab is I send them one of our profiling targets, and I say, please print this without any color correction. And they do. And then I take that profile, and instead of converting my images to sRGB to send it to the lab, I convert them to that output profile. And I get images back which hold colors that sRGB couldn't begin to hold. So their statement that the gamut of their lab is sRGB is complete baloney. What they're simply saying is our color workflow is kind of simplistic and we want to start from an sRGB image because it will give us about the right skin tones and so on. Okay. All right. That makes sense. So how did you get that output profile? I profiled their lab despite them. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) By having them print a color target and send it back to me and then reading the patches on that and building a profile, just like I would for an in-house inkjet. Okay. Now, by rights, the color lab, shame on them, should do this themselves and then supply that profile for people for soft-proofing purposes and use it for their output. Great. So there may be some labs that actually would provide that profile to you. There are color-managed labs. However, people tend to want to save money. They don't want to use the good photo labs. They want to use the cheap ones or the local ones. So uh, one of the solutions that we suggest is simply uh, if you can save a lot of money using a local lab that's convenient or less expensive, then use one of our printer profiling solutions, which at this point in time that would be Spider 3 Print. Use that to calibrate your inkjets, to profile your inkjets, but also use it for the photo lab so that you can uh, match your output. After all, if if you're a professional portrait photographer and you're giving someone a package that consists of three or four large prints you make on your wide format inkjet and a whole bunch of stuff from the lab, you really need to have the color on them all similar so that they can all go out in the same package. That's great. So I have a lab down the street, and if I wanted to use them for prints, I could use the Spider 3 print, for example, to calibrate. I'd give them something to print, bring it back, calibrate to that print, and then I know from then on when I use that lab, I can use that, that profile. Well, you know that until they change their chemistry, <laughs> okay. something else goes awry. <laughs> or the next high school student comes in to work on the machine. Exactly. <laughs> Inkjet profiles tend to be good for, um, oh, years if nothing changes. But, of course, if you uh, back when I did custom profiling for people, I would build them a profile and, and, and email it to them, and they'd use it. And I, uh, at the time when Epson moved all their ink manufacturing to China, I had a raft of customers sending me, oh, my God, my profile doesn't work anymore, emails. And I sent them all out a blanket. This is why I told you to get your own profiling product. You know, I, The whole goal <laughs> of building a few profiles for them was to convince them it was a good thing for them to be doing for themselves. So it's with an inkjet profile, until the paper coating changes or until the ink formulation changes, the profile's pretty much good. Now, with a photo lab, it's until something in their chemistry changes or, or they move to a different brand of paper. Now, with, uh, with a color laser, it's until the next front comes through and changes the humidity. Okay, wow. 
quite challenging to try to keep uh, to try to keep color lasers in color managed condition, which is why color lasers are generally used for quantity, not quality. Okay, I've got a few questions related to the actual process of calibrating a monitor. Uh, okay, that's actually where I was hoping to go to. Okay, obviously for for some people who don't do that, would you mind just briefly describing how that works? And then I have some questions related to ambient light and other factors that might come into play. Well, absolutely. The, the process of monitor calibration and profiling really is several steps. The first step is that you use the hardware device. In our case, it would be a Spider 3 puck that you're going to put on your screen to measure your screen and to help you set any hardware adjustments that your screen has controls for. Now, back in the CRT day, you could do all sorts of stuff with hardware controls, and it's always best to adjust when hardware when possible. In this day of LCDs, many of them have a grand total of one hardware adjustment, <laughs> and that's backlight control. So once you've done your hardware adjustments, uh, the next thing you're going to do is what we call after hardware calibration, you do video card calibration, which is the software calibration. This is corrections that we do and then apply to a correction table in your video card so that you've got the optimal stuff going from your computer out to the monitor. After calibration, you then do the process that's called profiling. Now, this is really very much the simpler part of the process. We display some patches on screen and figure out what the output on your monitor is, and we build a profile, which has, you know, a matrix profile for a monitor has about as much information on it as a business card does. It's very simple. It tells you how bright the green is and how bright the red is and the blue and the white point and a few other pieces of information, and then the gamma curves, that is the, the slope it makes from white to red, green, blue in each channel. So those pieces of information are then not used at all by the operating system, amazingly. What they're used by is color-managed applications. Now, on Windows, that really means a few graphics applications that are color-managed. On the Mac, it means almost everything. Freeware, shareware, pieces of the operating system, like Preview, or um, browsers, those are all color-managed applications on the Mac. So by the time you have built a monitor profile on the Mac, just about anything that you're going to bring a color image up in, it's going to look right. It's a little more challenging in Windows because there are fewer applications. For instance, Internet Explorer for Windows does not use color profiles. Therefore, you won't get color accurate results on the web unless, ironically enough, you use Safari for Windows, which is <laughs> Apple's application. That's classic. So, yeah, well, it's ironic. I'll give you that. So once you've, um, once you've run through those steps, which are, you know, in any modern monitor calibration process, there's a wizard, uh, an assistant that runs you through these steps, asks you a few questions, and has you make a few adjustments, and then it builds the profile, gives you the opportunity to name it if you want to, and then saves it, and then it assigns that as the, the monitor profile for that particular monitor. So the process takes maybe the first time it might take five minutes, and after that we uh, reuse some of the information that doesn't change, so we can do it probably two and a half minutes uh, every future time when you calibrate. That's one of the things that we've speeded up with the new Spider 3 line of monitor calibrators is we can read faster and we can make the whole process simpler for you. Now, you mentioned calibrating it in the future. How often do you recommend that this happens, and is it different for CRT and LCD? Well, CRTs, we knew exactly what went wrong with them over time. The guns became weaker over time, and the phosphors that the guns bombarded 
wore out over time. And no one bothered to make better guns because, after all, the phosphors were going to wear out anyway. So the life expectancy of a CRT, if you ran it in torch mode, as, as bright as it would go, was, oh, maybe a year and a half, wow. shockingly. Whereas if you ran it dim at about 80 candelas, you might get three years of full-time, meaning 40-hour-a-week use out of it. So the life expectancy of a CRT was pretty short, and that's why we won't have any more CRTs pretty soon if they stop making them and they wear out fairly quickly. Now, LCDs, they work with a whole different system where you have backlights or now LEDs instead of fluorescent backlights, so they'll last even longer. And yes, the um, system in them does have dyes in it, but it's, it's quite stable. So at this point in time, I would say for a CRT, for serious work, you calibrate every week, you might get away with every two weeks with an LCD. And the average user probably calibrates once a month. We simply put a, a preference in our software that lets you choose your calibration schedule. Okay. And you'll just be prompted to stick the puck on the screen and do it again. Each yeah, time. we refer to that as nagware. <laughs> right. <laughs> but so, it's uh, important. So our, our scheme with the new Spider 3 is to have an ambient light monitor, which we'll get to your next question, which uh, the Spider actually sits on a stand next to your monitor full time, and it nags you if your lighting levels run outside of the ideal ambient light range for your calibration. Wow. That way it's right there. It's next to your machine. We have a full-time uh, background application instead of a little startup these days so that if you are out of calibration, it will warn you. Now, it used to be it only warned you at startup, and some Mac users can go months without restarting their computers so they weren't <laughs> getting their warnings about recalibration. Also, when you restart, when you start your computer up, that's not the right time to calibrate it because your monitor's cold. Okay. So the newer system of having a continuous uh, background application that monitors your ambient light and does various things and also warns you when your calibration needs to be redone is a better solution. And it also means you've now got the device already plugged in, already running next to your machine. So instead of having to go dig it out of a drawer and crawl <laughs> into your computer and plug it in, it's all there. You pop it on the screen and two and a half minutes later, you're done. That's great. Now, you mentioned ambient light. How does that affect my uh, visual experience? Well, it's, it's interesting. The, the very first thing I did with a company called ColorVision when I started working with them was to take an ad out of a magazine that they'd printed where they had a printed image and they wanted you to hold it up next to the same image from their website on your screen and see how well they matched. And so I was working in a color-managed studio at the time. I pulled their ad out of the magazine, held it up. It didn't match. Put it under a proofing light. It did match. Well, they'd left out a factor. They uh, didn't say, hold this up next to your monitor under appropriate proofing light. So there, the ambient light conditions have always been a significant factor of getting your monitor right. And the way it works is this. If you're working on an old-fashioned CRT, which is a dim device, 80 candelas is not a measurement that most people would be familiar, very familiar with, but it's the level that an old CRT would run at. In the CRT days, the FedEx and UPS guys who came to my door would all make the same jokes. They would ask me who died, or more recently, <laughs> if I had Osama in there. Um, <laughs> what they're all saying is it's as dark as a cave in your office. Now that I run an entirely LCD studio, I can have a moderately low level of ambient light instead of an extremely low level of ambient light, which means it may still be the dimmest room they go in in the course of the day, but at least they can stumble in there without tripping over the furniture to get me to sign for packs. So 
as you get serious about color management, you realize that you can't be in a room with a picture window overlooking the ocean and do your color managed work. I mean, it's not a reasonable combination. You have to have controlled ambient light. So the first thing our spider does is to check your ambient light and tell you what the level is because a lot of people are working in an American office and think that that level of light is actually appropriate. They don't realize that it's quite high. So it checks your light and then it makes reasonable First off, it encourages you to adjust it, uh, your ambient light level, and then it and it makes suggestions as to what good white point and white luminance levels are to go with that level of ambient light. Okay. Thereafter, it will then monitor your ambient light, and if it gets out of that range, out of that zone, it puts up a little icon in your Mac menu bar or your Windows tool tray that warns you that you're you're out of your zone and that you should uh, open the utility and, and adjust your ambient light. That seems to make a lot of sense and also seems to make a lot of sense as you talk about the brightness of old monitors because a while ago, the older CRT monitors that I was trying to use in fairly bright rooms, just even though the brightness was all the way up, they just couldn't, they couldn't pull it off. It just looked dark and, you know. Well, this is why we use um, nice, bright, new LCDs on show floors at expos and, and conventions. And we're kind of saying, do as I say, not as I do. Right. <laughs> here we are under the bright lights in there saying, now, you know, you can't really do serious work under lighting conditions like that. <laughs> but what we really should have is a, is a show booth that's a, uh, uh, got a tent and a canopy over the roof so that we can uh, show people real, real proper lighting conditions. Okay. Now, then they can all stumble in and fall down and break, your, break your equipment. <laughs> well, I have two follow-up questions for that. One is, you mentioned proofing lights. If I am printing at home or I'm getting in my studio, I have my own printers or I'm bringing things home from the lab, is there ideal light for looking at those images as well then? Well, there is, but this comes under several categories. One is you, you, pick, a, you pick a field. Uh, if it's, if it's uh, fabric and automotive, then 6,500K would be the standard. If it's graphic arts and photography, 5,000K is the standard. Now, there's not a huge difference between these. One, 6,500K is the combination of sunlight plus blue sky. So if you take a picture outside and hold it up with the sun shining on it, but also the sky shining on it, that's 6,500K. Now, if you cut a hole in your wall, which is what a window is, of course, and you put an image where the sunlight shines on it, but there is no blue sky, then that's going to be a yellower light, and mm -hmm. that would be 5,000K. Okay. Now, any light in that range would be great if it had the full spectrum that sunlight has. Unfortunately, if you buy a fluorescent light, the spectrum tends to be kind of spiky. It, it has a little of this and a little of that and a lot of gaps in between. Uh, an incandescent light tends to be quite smooth, but it's also very heavy on the yellows and very weak on the blues. If I have incandescent light, as I do in my closet, and I try to pick out my teal shirt instead of my blue one, I miss about half the time because there's <laughs> just not enough light on that end of the spectrum to let me know what I'm doing. So the first goal is quality light. A proofing light should have a high color rendering index, a CRI number that is above 90. That means that it renders color fairly well. And if you're going to then try to match your images to anybody else's, their proofing light is going to be a 5000K light if they're in graphic arts or photography, so that would be the one to go for. Now, that doesn't tell you what your picture is going to look like in a museum or a gallery that uses tungsten light. It's about 3000K, or in 
some atrium with a lot of skylights, which is going to be 9300K from all that blue sky. So after you've looked at your image under a proofing light, your next job is to run around and look under an incandescent light and under blue skylight to check for what we call illuminant metamorism, which is changes that occur based on different light sources. Wow. That's one of the great things about the new inkjet printers that have multiple gray inks, is we can now print black and white images that remain quite stable, that do not turn horrible colors under different lighting conditions. That was my biggest reason for going to a color-managed workflow, was dealing with the metamorism effect. Well, and we haven't eliminated those entirely. The new printers uh, improve a lot. Now, but if you are, for instance, using magenta and yellow to make a bright red on an image, that bright red will shift and under a bad light source it will look considerably less red and considerably less bright. Under a deeper light source that has more blue in it, it's going to shift in its tonality. We have fixed the neutrals. That doesn't mean we fixed the other colors. Uh, having extra primaries in there, the way HP and uh, Canon have done of late, where they have red, green, and blue secondary colors, as well as the cyan, magenta, and yellow primaries, reduces metamorism by having the, the distance between the color you're you're trying to print, and the inks you're using to print it to be reduced. Hmm. So there's lots of improvements in the newer printers. That's amazing. Well, if I may ask my second follow-up question, we talked about good, ideal ambient light conditions for doing editing, but unfortunately, on a lot of shoots that I'm on, that is nowhere near the case. So let's say I have my laptop, I'm tethered with my camera, and I just need to get make sure that I'm getting decent color in the field. Do you have any recommendations for that situation? Like, should we use hoods? Should we be calibrating? Is it different with a laptop? Well, a, a laptop is a compromise in many ways. One compromise is to, to extend your battery life. The viewing angle is very restricted on a laptop, which means you have to have your head right square in front of it because you move it up, it's lighter. You move it down, it's darker. Move to the side, it's a different color. So as a viewing angle on a, on a quality LCD, a desktop LCD, is much better than that on even the best of the laptops. So while I do use my laptop, if I'm at a show, I go out and shoot the Vegas lights at night and come into the show in the morning and process the images and print them out on the booth printer. And the answer is, rather than getting them right on the first try, as I would on my color-managed system in the office, I might get them right on the second try. And what I probably miss is the shadow detail, because you can't really judge that as clearly on a laptop. But yes, you can, you can do pretty good work on a laptop. Again, the lower the light, the better doesn't hurt to have that old photographer's tool, which is called a cloak, with you so that you can throw a cloak right over the laptop and yourself, cut out as much ambient light as possible, and view in a, in a much darker condition. Okay. Now, um, short of that, yes, a monitor hood. I consider monitor hoods to be a Band-Aid, therefore eliminating light sources that you really should eliminate permanently. Uh, you, if you need a monitor hood in your studio, you might want to consider adjusting the lighting in your studio. But certainly, monitor hoods for use on site make a great deal of sense. Now, okay. what you're going to have to do with your monitor on site is you're going to have to calibrate your laptop as bright as it goes and to you know a white point that's appropriate for, for fairly uncontrolled lighting, like 6500K, and just live with that because that, that's the best you can get for variable conditions. If I calibrate and I have a profile for my laptop and I come back to my studio and I dock my laptop to my widescreen LCD monitor, is the software smart enough to switch my profile when I open it? 
Well, our software is smart enough to profile those devices for you. The question is, is your operating system and your video card smart enough? Okay. Now, if you're on a Mac, you can have, you'll have no trouble at all calibrating both you know, your MacBook Pro display and your big cinema display. If you're on Windows, you really need to have two video cards or one PCI Express card for two monitors. Otherwise, it either doesn't recognize them as two separate devices in terms of applying profiles, or the card doesn't have two slots for video correction. So right. either of those will cause a failure to have a completely color-managed system. Now, the alternative, particularly for Windows laptops, is an either-or. In other words, you, you use the profile for your laptop while you're in the field, and then you change the profile for your, your good monitor, your other secondary monitor, when you're back at the desktop, and just understand that color's not quite right on the, uh, on the small display. Similarly, if you use a projector with your laptop, you do the same thing. You'd switch from your laptop profile to your projector profile while you're projecting. Okay. That makes sense. Thank you. should mention that of the current line of data color Spider products, Spider 3 Elite, the top-end display calibration software, includes software for calibrating front projectors as well as LCDs and CRTs and laptops. So that's, oh, by $1,000, the cheapest solution on the market to calibrate projectors. The Spider 3 Pro version is a simpler software which does not include projector calibration and it doesn't include some of the bells and whistles for advanced users such as side-by-side -side monitor matching and studio targeting. But it, it's all that a lot of people need for calibrating a monitor or two. So that covers the options for photographic calibration of monitors. The printer side of it, our current spectro-based printer profiling solution is the Spider 3 Print. And of course, for, oh, about $100 more than print, you can get the whole studio, Spider 3 Studio, which comes in a nice metal case. And it's the Spider 3 Elite monitor software and hardware with the Spider 3 Print printer software and hardware. So that's the full bundle. Okay. And that's, uh, that's what people who are trying to get their prints to match their monitor are really looking for. That's great. Does the same application work if I have a Mac and a PC in my studio? Yeah, for all of our digital imaging applications, everything I've just named, it's one CD, one serial number, Mac and Windows, and for all the monitor calibration stuff, it's a site license. So you can calibrate all the monitors on your site plus a few laptops with it. For the printer profiling, you really only need to keep that on one system, but you can profile all your printers with it. Okay, great. That's really great that you guys include the site license with it. That way you don't have to worry about you know, putting out a several hundred dollars for each workstation you have. Well, there was a time when that was how it worked. Of course, today, the real limitation is convenience. Uh, when people say, how many spiders should I have? I say, well, are, can I see all your monitors standing in one place? Well, no, we have some in another room. Well, you probably want another spider in that other room. And particularly with the ambient light measuring function, you, you really ought to have one spider plugged in and checking the ambient light in each different room. So pretty much the, the practical limit of uh, spider purchasing is uh, the convenience of having it where you need it and the, uh, the functionality of having the ambient light measurement in each of your different environments. Would there be any way that that ambient light measurement would communicate to the other workstations in that room or not? Well, no, but you really only have one lighting condition in a studio. If, uh, for instance, we set this up recently in a, in a uh, school photo studio, and as I was talking about it, someone came in and turned the lights on, and sure enough, the ambient light warning came on. <laughs> well, 
having it come on on eight other workstations wouldn't have been necessary. Right. <laughs> simply have it come on on the master station, and uh, that's the person who hollers at people to shut the lights off. And I guess, too, if you're if concentrating on keeping a controlled space, and most spaces, I would think, don't vary a whole lot, yeah, you would probably be okay in that, re- in that aspect as well. Well, it, it, is, it can sneak up on you. I was working in our own offices in Zurich in Europe, and as the afternoon progressed, there was only one large window in this big conference room I was working in. And I had just profiled a printer and printed a, an image I'd shot the night before out, and it looked nothing like my monitor. And I thought, what is going on here? Well, the sun had come down, and it was shining in through this window on the other side of the room against the white wall behind me. And mm-hmm. I looked at that and said, wow, that snuck up on me. And I went over and closed the wonderful exterior shutters that they have on uh, commercial buildings in Europe and blacked that window out and went back and looked at my image against the monitor again, and that was a perfect match. So I immediately opened the shutter again and ran and got our, our tech guys from the European team and brought them in and showed them my mismatch and said, what's wrong here? And only one out of three of them got the question right. Oh. <laughs> so it, it, is, it can be very deceptive, and that's why having the spider sitting there monitoring it for you is a good backup. Wow. Well, I really want to thank you, David, for sharing your very obvious knowledge of this process and that's been a great help for me i'm sure it's been a great help for our audience but i wanted to give a chance to a little bit of a mention for some of the great resources that are on data keller's website because as i was uh thinking about this interview i visited the site and i hadn't realized how much great technical information you actually have there yeah we've been trying to put things together over time i think with the new spider three line we're doing a better job of that and one of the resources worth looking at as well as the faqs and some of the tutorials is the digital imaging newsletter if you just go and look at the back issues of that you'll find some excellent tips on color management in general and how to use specific products for specific things you know there are um, testimonials by various users that kind of show you know how they use our products to their particular There's a fine art printer who does canvas printing who goes into great detail about profiling canvas both with and without varnish. So Mm. whatever your interest is, you may find something there on the website that that will cover it. That's terrific. Well, again, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us tonight and for agreeing to come on the show at this late hour. My pleasure, and I hope that I haven't scared anyone off from color management. The whole goal is to make a start at it, to at least get out there and get a monitor calibrator and hardware calibrate that monitor and and to take it from there. Terrific. Well, that's all we have for this episode of LightSource, the brightest podcast on the Internet. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode and all the other LightSource episodes at the website studiolighting.net. And you can also send us an email comment at studiolighting at gmail.com when you can send us comments, questions, or just images that you'd like us to see. And if you really want to get involved with some of the other listeners to the show, you can head over to the LightSource Flickr group at www.flickr.com slash groups slash LightSource. You can post your images and get feedback on your photography as well as seeing the things that we're taking pictures of. And as always, if you missed any of these links, our quick outro here, you can find all of that and more at www.studiolighting.net. Till next time.
check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.